Good morning, Grace. Hebrews chapter 12. We only have a couple more weeks left in the book of Hebrews. We started well over a year ago. It's been good for my soul to be in this book. If you're a fan of the hit AMC show, The Walking Dead, you were introduced last week to a character by the name of King Ezekiel. And if you're a fan of the show and you have not watched last week's episode, you need to plug your ears because I'm going to drop a little spoiler on you here. If you're not a fan, just bear with me and let me explain. In the zombie apocalypse, as anarchy runs wild and people do and live uh, any way they want to, they do what's right in their own eyes, just like in the Old Testament book, the book of Judges, there is this man, there is this leader who has built up this community of survivors called the kingdom. He's a unique and quirky individual with these long dreadlocks. His name is Ezekiel, but he's known in the kingdom as King Ezekiel. Now, before the zombie apocalypse started, Ezekiel was a zookeeper. He worked at the zoo, and one day he jumped into this cage to help this tiger that had hurt its leg. And ever since that day, this tiger has been attached to him and will not eat him or attack him. So he has this pet tiger named Shiva. Also, before the zombie apocalypse, Ezekiel was involved with his local theater, and he played several kings in some productions. And so Ezekiel uses these experiences as being a zookeeper and being involved in local theater. He uses those experiences to help him build up this community that he's called the kingdom. And so King Ezekiel sits on this throne in this theater on this stage with a backdrop of some painted castles and there's a real tiger next to him named Shiva on a chain and he speaks with this Elizabethan accent and his voice sounds like some actor from some Shakespeare play. So he says things like, my name is King Ezekiel, welcome to the kingdom. Once he says to his right hand man, Jerry You are a faithful steward, but your words leave me pitch-kettled. I had to look up pitch-kettled this week. Didn't know what that word meant. Another time he says, I encourage those who find respite here to enjoy the fruits of our grandeur for as long as they like, so long as they contribute. Drink from the well. Replenish the well. In one scene, he tries to get this lady to eat some fruit and to have a pomegranate, but she refused because of all the work that's required to eat a pomegranate. So King Ezekiel says this, Sweet fruits surrounded by bitter. There's something of a contradiction, but heaven for the effort. And so there's this weird scenario where you have this king with these long dreadlocks sitting on this throne inside this theater with a painted castle backdrop and a real live tiger next to him on a chain, and he speaks like this king from some Shakespeare play. Meanwhile, outside the walls of the kingdom, it's the zombie apocalypse. People are doing whatever they want to do. Then later in the episode, Ezekiel reveals that it's all a sham, His accent, the throne, all of it. He reveals that he has created this fairy tale world to give people hope because of the zombie apocalypse. Outside the walls of the kingdom, it's anarchy. Every person is doing what is right in their own eyes. And so Ezekiel has created this place called the kingdom where everyone feels safe, even though it's like a big fairy tale and it's not real life. His kingdom, in one sense, is just a show. It's a sham. 
His kingdom is a fairy tale where people have spread stories and rumors how Ezekiel wrestled the tiger Shiva to the ground and made it submit to him. And so his, his legend is growing inside of his own kingdom. But the truth of the matter is that Ezekiel's kingdom could, crumbling, could come crumbling down at any minute. But the people that live there in the kingdom just don't see it. They're content to live behind these protective walls and to believe this fairy tale that they are living in. Now, contrast King Ezekiel's fairy tale kingdom with God's kingdom. As we will see today, because of Jesus, we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We serve a king who will never lose his kingdom. The Christian life, what we believe as Christians, is not a fairy tale. It's true. It's real. We will reign with Jesus forever on the new earth and his enemies will be punished for all of eternity. This is not a fairy tale, Grace. We have received a kingdom that will not be shaken and that's exactly what the preacher of Hebrews is talking about in our passage today. The Hebrews, if you remember, were being tempted to earn their way to the kingdom. They were being tempted to return to the Mosaic law in order to be declared righteous, to be justified. They were beginning to listen again to the voice of the law, which says, get better, do more, try harder, get your act together, pull up your bootstraps and earn your way to God. But what the Hebrews needed to hear was the voice of the gospel, the voice of of King Jesus, who says, it is finished. There is now no condemnation. The Hebrews were beginning to hear the voice of the law. They were being pulled back to the old covenant to earn righteousness through their behavior, through their obedience to God's law. So they're being tempted to return to the old covenant sacrificial system where they could find forgiveness of sins by uh, slaughtering lambs in their place. But as we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews, one can never be justified. One can never be declared righteous through obedience to the law. Yes, God's law is good. His law is good. It teaches us what he expects of us. It teaches us how we can please God, but you cannot go to the law to earn righteousness because the law actually demands perfection. And that's exactly what the Hebrews were being tempted to return to. So the preacher is challenging those in this congregation who are being tempted to return to the old covenant to be justified. And he will continue his warning and his challenge in our passage today. He will warn those who have claimed to trust in Christ that it is dangerous to return to the law and dangerous to return to the old covenant. He will warn them of the dangers of listening to the wrong voice. And so our big idea today is what Jesus uttered on the cross as he breathed his last breath in John 19.30. It is finished. That's the voice and those are the words that we need to hear all the time. It's exactly what the Hebrews needed to hear. Those words are the words that echo throughout God's kingdom The banner that waves over the kingdom of God reads, It is finished. Jesus did it all through his life, death, and resurrection. 
Now, let me show you where I'm getting all that. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, and hear the word of the Lord. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The preacher is reminding the Hebrews that they have not come to Mount Sinai. They don't have to be afraid to draw near to God. You remember in the Old Testament what happened when Israel appeared at Mount Sinai and Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, showed up? The Israelites were scared. The preacher of Hebrews tells us Moses was scared. When the nation of Israel gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai and they heard God speak, they were scared to death. And this was the main way that God spoke in the Old Testament. It was through the giving of the law. That's the main way that God spoke, through the law. And he gave the law to Israel in Exodus 19. And when he did, they were scared to death. And then in the next chapter, Exodus chapter 20, the nation of Israel said that they had had enough of God's audible voice. You know, we, sometimes we do this as Christians, like, if I could just hear God's voice, if he could just tell me what he wants me to do, you don't want to hear God's voice. The Israelites were scared to death when they heard God's voice. This is where, in Exodus 20, when they actually begged God, they begged Yahweh to stop speaking to them. They heard the Ten Commandments, and they said, we're done hearing Yahweh speak. They only made it through the Ten Commandments and they were done. They heard Ten Commandments. They didn't hear the rest of the 613 laws that are spelled out in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. They only heard ten words. The Hebrew for the Ten Commandments is the ten words or the ten sayings. They heard ten words and that was enough. They couldn't take it anymore so they asked Moses to pass God's word on to them because they were so frightened of God's audible voice. Listen to Exodus 20, verses 18 through 19. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. When Yahweh appeared on Mount Sinai, Moses warned the people, you need to stay away. In fact, Exodus 19.23 tells us that they put a fence up around Mount Sinai to keep people away. And if any beast or animal broke through the fence, then it would die. And so the Lord appeared and there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud and a loud trumpet blast. And then there was smoke everywhere because the Lord descended on top of Mount Sinai in fire. And there was an earthquake and there was this trumpet that kept blowing. They got louder and louder and louder. And then God spoke to the people in the thunder. He always spoke the Ten Commandments. And how did the people respond to all of this? How do they respond to seeing the thunder and the lightning and the clouds and the fire and the thick smoke and the loud trumpets, the earthquake and the voice of the Lord? They were scared to death. Picture it in your mind. They were scared to death when they saw the fire and the smoke and felt the earthquake. They were scared to death when they heard the thunder and when they heard the ten words from the Lord. And they told Moses, we'll listen to you, but please make God stop. When he speaks, we get scared. 
If Yahweh talks to us again, Moses will die. Ten words are enough. Ten words are all that we can handle, Moses. But that was under the old covenant. Under the old covenant, God spoke the law. He spoke the Ten Commandments, which are a reflection of his character and a reflection of who he is and what he requires of all humanity. And he spoke those words, and Israel was scared to death. But now, in the new covenant, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, God has now spoken to us in his son, Jesus. So we don't have to be afraid of God. Of course, we have to have a reverential fear and awe of God, but we are not called to be afraid of him. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, a better covenant. Jesus is better and greater than Moses. Things are different now. Things are better now. All of this to say that God speaks two words in Scripture. He speaks law and he speaks gospel. That's what the Protestant reformers were all in agreement on, and then the Puritans followed suit as well. So what the author of Hebrews is saying here in Hebrews 12 is that God has two words that he speaks. He speaks law, and he speaks gospel. And he spoke law from Mount Sinai, and he spoke the gospel from Mount Zion, from Calvary. So God speaks two words, law and gospel. What we must do... And what has been done for us by Jesus. And if you understand this, you'll have a PhD in theology. Martin Luther has famously said, Hence, whoever knows well this art of distinguishing between the law and the gospel, him place at the head and call him a doctor of holy scripture. God speaks two words. The law, what we must do, and the gospel, what Jesus has done for us. And under the Old Covenant, God primarily spoke law. Yes, the gospel is in the Old Testament. Yes, grace is in the Old Testament. It was all pointing toward Jesus. But God primarily spoke law, what he expects of us. But now, the preacher of Hebrews says, he has spoken to us in his son, what Jesus has done for us. So leave Exodus 19, 20 behind with all of its smoke and fire and earthquakes and lightning and thunder. And let's read Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because of Jesus, because we are in union with him, we don't approach God at Mount Sinai. We have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We have come to God's very presence where there are innumerable angelic beings worshiping him and glorifying him. We have come to his throne, to his presence, where all of God's elect are, his chosen people are. We have come to God who is the judge of all, the preacher says. But he's not our judge anymore. He's our father. We have come to a loving father, not a cranky judge. For Christians, for those who are in union with Christ, our judgment day has moved from the future to the past at the cross. 
Our judgment day has been moved from the future all the way back to Mount Zion, to Mount Calvary, where Jesus bore our sins on the cross and we were judged with him on the cross. And when we die, our bodies go into the ground to await resurrection while our spirits go to be with Jesus, where they are perfected for all time and where we await the joining together again of body and spirit in resurrection. And the preacher says, not only have we come to all of those glorious truths, he says, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, our great and merciful and faithful high priest. We have come to the sprinkled blood of Jesus. And because of his shed blood, we can approach God boldly. So do you see the contrast here between the old and new covenants? You have fear and trembling on one side, and you have confidence on the other. You have scared to death, and then you have boldly approaching the throne of grace. Are you crazy? Draw near to the living God with confidence? Uh Uh-uh, no way. That's exactly what an Old Testament saint would say. An Old Testament saint would say, have you read Exodus chapters 19 and 20? then you must be crazy. You can't approach God. You can't get near him or you'll die. And that's exactly why the new covenant is better. That's exactly why Jesus is better. We don't have to have Moses represent us. We don't have to come to some ironic high priest to represent us. We don't have to stay far away from the mountain behind a fence. We don't have to have Moses go into the tent of meeting and have him put a veil over his face because the glory of the Lord is too much for us to handle. No, we can approach God boldly and confidently and transparently and honestly because of Jesus Because he is our high priest who has passed through the heavens in his ascension and has made the way possible through his flesh, through the curtain. And so we can approach the triune God with confidence because it is finished. Because Jesus paid it all. And this is exactly why the preacher of Hebrews is perplexed that the Hebrews want to return to the old covenant. He's perplexed that they want to return to Mount Sinai and live in fear when they can approach God's throne just as they are without fear. Now, let me say something here about the fear of God. Of course, we don't come flippantly into God's presence. If you think for a minute that you can approach God flippantly, then you haven't read your Bible enough. Hebrews 4.16 does not say, let us then flippantly draw near. When we say that that uh, we fear, we don't mean that we have this, uh, we're scared of him. We're talking about having a healthy, reverential fear of God. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he dwells in white hot glory. And we're called to fear him. But we don't live in fear of him as Christians, as his adoptive children. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. His throne is a great white throne, unspotted and clear as crystal. Familiarity there may be, but let it not be unhallowed. Boldness there should be, but let it not be impertinent. Listen, Grace, we don't have to fear God in one sense, like he's going to strike us with a lightning bolt. Listen, if he wanted to do that, he could do that, and he might have already done it. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a healthy fear of God. Of course, we should have this 
robust, healthy fear of God, a dread of breaking his commandments. Yes, absolutely. Or we better have that. Listen, if you think you can just live any way that you want to and disregard God and his word, you might want to visit a few people in the Bible. Uzzah, who reached out when the Ark of the Covenant fell off uh, the uh, cart, he touched it and died in 2 Samuel 6. Eli's sons, who were wicked priests, died in 1 Samuel chapters 2 through 4. The wicked kings of Judah and Israel are testimony to God's holiness. And even in the new covenant, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. King Herod, we read about in Acts 12, was struck down and eaten by worms. To name a few people. If you think that you can approach the triune God flippantly, then you need a wake-up call. But we don't have to fear him, to live in fear of him. We don't have to be afraid of God as Christians. We don't have to stay behind a fence at the foot of Mount Sinai. We don't have to be afraid of the thundering voice of God. We don't have to take our shoes off like Moses did There's no barrier around God like there was at Sinai. We can approach his throne with confidence. In fact, this reverence and this awe that we should have is more along the lines of being so overwhelmed that God in his grace has saved us and has given us his kingdom which cannot be shaken. We are in awe. We can't believe that he's been so good to sinners like us. That's kind of that reverential fear and awe. It's like, I can't believe he's been this good to me. We are awestruck that the gospel is true. We are awestruck that we, who did nothing to earn it, we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is not a fairy tale, Grace. The gospel is not a fairy tale. That's really what it means to live in awe of God. It's just too good to be true. But it is true. I can't believe it, but I believe it. We are grateful. We should be grateful for his kindness and his goodness to sinners like us. We are grateful that we have inherited a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so we don't have to have fear approaching God. But the people who do have to fear God, the people who better fear God, are those who are a part of the church, but they aren't really born again. The people who come in here week after week, and they hear the gospel, and they've never been converted. They've never been regenerated. They're not born again. They're not Christians. They're not in union with Christ. They haven't been adopted into God's family. Those are the people who better fear God. And that's who the preacher addresses next in verse 25. He says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The preacher is warning those in the, Hebrews, in the Hebrew congregation who are being tempted to go back to Mount Sinai. 
He's telling them that they better not refuse God's voice. Because in the gospel, as he told us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, God has now spoken to us in his son. He told us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, we better pay closer attention to what we have heard. He tells us in Hebrews 12 that the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cries out for vengeance. The blood of Abel cries out for retribution. The blood of Abel cries out for punishment. But the blood of Jesus speaks forgiveness. The blood of Jesus speaks reconciliation. The blood of Jesus speaks about cleansing and being made right with God. So the preacher says that the Hebrews better not refuse him who is speaking. The voice of Jesus is the voice of the gospel. His voice is declaring that sinners may be clean. And the preacher does not want the Hebrews to ignore this voice. And he tells them why in verse 25. He says, if the Israelites who heard God's voice at Sinai, they heard his voice in the law, if they did not escape punishment, then those who have sat in church and heard the gospel over and over and over again and refused to believe it, he says, they will not escape punishment. And that's exactly what he's already said two times in his sermon so far in Hebrews chapter 6 and in Hebrews chapter 10. At Mount Sinai, God's voice shook the earth. But the preacher quotes the prophet Haggai here to remind the Hebrews that God will not only shake the earth in judgment again one day, he'll even shake the heavens with his voice. And when God speaks this way at the end of time, then the heavens above and the earth below will be shaken to their core and destroyed, and then what will be left? That which is unshakable, he says. God's kingdom. The kingdom of God cannot be shaken. And when it all comes down at the end, only God's kingdom and his bride, the church, will survive. God is a consuming fire, he says, and he will burn away everything that does not belong to his kingdom, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.10. And after that, God will make everything sad, come untrue. God will make everything new. For those who are in union with Christ, you have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You might want to remind yourself of that come Tuesday evening when all the ballots are counted. For those who are in union with Christ, you have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And you might want to memorize Hebrews chapter 12 verses 28 through 29 so that you can sleep peacefully on Tuesday night. And when you wake up on Wednesday morning this coming week after the presidential election is over, guess who is going to be standing by your bedside to greet you when you wake up? The preacher of Hebrews. And he will tell you then as he is now, be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He will tell you on Wednesday morning, it is finished. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. America, it can be shaken. It probably will one day. Listen, if you have put your trust in a politician, you have put your trust in a fairy tale kingdom. If you have put your trust in our government, you have put your trust in a fairy tale kingdom. If you have put your trust in America, if you have put your trust in this nation, you have put your trust in a fairy tale kingdom. But the kingdom of God that is advancing in the world today can never be shaken. 
It's not a fairy tale kingdom. We have a king who rules over all. We have a king who is coming back for his bride, the church. And Martin Luther explains this so well. Luther explained salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in a tract that he wrote titled, On the Freedom of a Christian. And he said one of the best ways to understand the gospel is by thinking of it as a marriage between a king and a queen. And so Luther tells the story of this great king who represents Jesus. And this king is rich and powerful and wise and kind and good. And he marries this poor girl from a poor village. But she's not just a poor girl. She's actually a prostitute. And in the story, she represents us, the church. And this girl, this prostitute from this poor village on her own and through her own behavior she could never make herself the king's wife she could never be good enough to marry the king she could try and clean up her act she should she could cut down on the prostitution she could go to bible studies and and work for the good of her city she could help little old ladies cross the street She could try to be really, really good, but none of her actions would deem her worthy to be the king's wife. It's only if the king chooses her to be his wife. That's the only chance that she has. And so the king does choose her to be his wife. And so they get married, the king and the prostitute. Think about that. The king and the prostitute have this glorious wedding. And on the wedding day, She tells the king, all that I am, I give to you. And the king says, thanks a lot. (laughs) And so she shares with the king all of her dishonor, her debts, her shady past, her wicked ways, her diseases. Not the best things to share. But then the king speaks to her and he says, my darling, all that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you. And just like that, she is the queen. She has gone from being a prostitute to becoming the queen of the kingdom. And she doesn't know yet how a queen is supposed to act. She hasn't changed her ways yet. She doesn't know how to act and behave as a queen. She will one day. She'll learn. But she's messy. She's real messy. She's got baggage that she's bringing into this relationship. She's rough around the edges. But she's the queen. And all of his kingdom is hers. That's the gospel grace. The great marriage of Jesus and his bride. We give to Jesus all of our sins, our diseases, our baggage, our mess, our drama. And he takes it all unto himself on the cross. And then he shares with us all of his life, all of his righteousness, all of his glory, all of his kingdom. He takes our sin and we take his righteousness. And so our identity is changed in that great exchange there. No longer the prostitute. Now the church is the queen. No longer the prostitute, though we still play the part. 
We still have our lovers and our idols that we chase after. But no longer the prostitute, even though we still play the part. Now the church is the queen. United in marriage to her king. And all of his kingdom belongs to her. And so Luther then says that the sinner can confidently display his or her sin. In the face of death, in the face of hell, and say these words. If I have sinned, yet my Christ has not sinned. And all his is mine, and all of mine is his. Listen to Luther. He says, who then can value highly enough these royal nuptials? Who can comprehend the riches of the glory of this grace? Christ That rich and pious husband takes as a wife a needy and impious harlot, redeeming her from all her evils and supplying her with all his good things. It is impossible now that her sins should destroy her, since they have been laid upon Christ and swallowed up in him, and since she has in her husband Christ a righteousness which she may claim as her own and which she can set up with confidence against all of her sins, against death and hell, saying, If I have sinned, my Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned, and all mine is his, and all his is mine. We are perfectly accepted in Christ. We have his righteousness. He has spoken this truth over us. His voice has declared these things true of us. It's not a fairy tale. And if this is true, if we are accepted in Christ and we have his righteousness, then here's what it means. We're secure. We're secure in him We are safe. He will never let us go. His kingdom will not be shaken. Not even by our sins. His kingdom will not be shaken. Not even by our sins. The ones that we committed last week. That we're embarrassed about. Look at verse 28 again. Therefore... Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We can now enjoy this intimacy with our King Jesus. We can come and worship him with acceptable offerings. We can worship our King with reverence and awe. Just being in awe that he loves us. Not losing our wonder That's my prayer is, God, don't let me lose my wonder. Don't let me lose my awe of this gospel that I rehearse daily. See, there's intimacy now in knowing Christ. Contrast that with Mount Sinai, which was mentioned in verse 18. No, Christian, you've come to your king, your savior, and there's intimacy now. Sweet communion you can have with Jesus because you are in union with him. So which voice are you listening to today? The thundering voice from Sinai that brings fear? Or the voice of your Savior, your King? Do you hear the law crying out to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect? To do more and to try harder and earn your way and earn His love? Or do you hear Jesus crying out from the cross? It is finished. Mark Jones says, Justification by faith means we are as entitled to heaven as Christ is Himself. 
We only lose heaven if God excommunicates his son. Because we are in union with Christ, we are entitled to heaven just as Jesus is. We will only lose heaven. The kingdom will only be shaken if God excommunicates his son Jesus. And that ain't going to happen, ever. So we are secure. And so let these words from Jesus give you the encouragement that you need today. Listen to his voice from Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let your Savior's voice bring you the comfort you need this morning. Let it comfort you Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. Those words in Luke twelve thirty two change everything. His voice changes everything. Jesus says to us, I'm King Jesus. Welcome to the kingdom. Yes, you're still a part of this broken world that awaits redemption. Yes, you are a citizen of the United States of America, a nation that seems to be coming apart at the seams. Yes, you are going and will go through trials and suffering that will make you feel like you cannot go on another day, but you are a citizen of another kingdom too. Your king loves you and he's working for your good and for your joy. And what is out of your control today is under his rule. Let me say that again because somebody may need to hear that. What is out of your control is under his rule. You have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And his kingdom will have no end. It's not a fairy tale. Long after America is gone and destroyed and forgotten and read about in history books... Because I'm not sure we're going to be around, honestly. Long after we're just a blip on the radar of history and people read about this nation that just messed it up. You know what's going to happen? You will be reigning with your king and his kingdom will go on forever and ever and ever. Hear his voice once more and have hope this morning. Fear not, little flock. We're a little flock, and you're telling us not to fear? What's out there in the world? Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Hear his voice from the cross once more. It is finished. Let's pray, and then we will share a meal together, the Lord's Supper, where we will where we will celebrate what our King has done for us, and we will look to this table and anticipate the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will see Jesus with our eyes and eat at this glorious banquet with him one day in the kingdom forever. The table before us reminds us of the bitterness of sin, the bitterness of our sin, but it also reminds us of the sweetness of the gospel. Sweet fruit surrounded by bitter. There's something of a contradiction, but heaven for the effort. Let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us in your son. There is no way that we could ever build up and secure a kingdom because as Jesus said, we're a little flock. 
a little flock of scared, dumb sheep. And yet, Father, in your good pleasure, with joy, it delights you to give us your kingdom. And so we thank you for the kingdom that cannot be shaken, not even shaken by our sin. And so, Father, we wrestle with the bitterness of our sin this morning. We confess and we repent. We have played the part of a harlot and chased after other lovers. And we ask you to forgive us of our sins and help us to remember that though we are great sinners, Christ is a greater Savior. And so may we celebrate the coming kingdom this morning with joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.